So the first question, um, and there is coffee at the back. I forgot to say that, and tea and water. But why, why a theology class? I'd be interested to hear some thoughts on, um, have you studied theology before? Is this like the first time you've ever thought about it or talked about it? Or why do you think it's important to study theology? And I'm going to ask like questions and have good interaction, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, who, like, have you studied theology before? Is this new to you? Why do you think it's important? Any thoughts? I've studied a little bit of theology, but not a whole lot. But we've been studying other religions and how, like, the Bible and stuff uh, acts it, and like, it's been teaching me how much I need to really know what I believe. Mm-hmm. Like everyone, yeah, they all know so strongly their beliefs and their fight stances. It's like, yeah, maybe I need to really solid know, like what happened when, just like time brings better and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. that's great, yep. Yeah, because you guys were studying like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses and other, yeah. And Muslims. What? And Muslims, okay. And apparently they are very much like, they teach their kids how to fight against Christianity basically. Like, oh, here's the passages that are, are uh, contradictory or whatever. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Anybody else? So there's a, there's a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer, and he, he wrote a great book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he started it by saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that is so true because when you, when you think of theology, I, I remember having a conversation with my sister years ago and she was like, I don't really want to argue theology. I don't want to talk about theology. I'm not a theologian. And I was like, but you are because have you ever thought about God or like read about God? That's theology. Like that's doing theology, right? Um, theology is just the study of God. And uh, what Tozer says is, right, what, it, what comes into our minds when we think about God is probably the most important thing about us because it then defines everything about our lives and about who we are and what we do. And so the study of theology um, is super, super important. But I can remember even being in Bible college and the study of theology got a little bit out of hand because it was like, well, how many angels are there? And could God create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? I'm like, okay, well, that's just silly theology. We don't need to spend time talking about those kind of like unanswerable, how many angels could fit on the end of this pin? And it's like, well, who cares about that? So I get that, but uh, theology uh, is super important. So for the next 11 weeks, basically the whole fall, um, we're going to dive into just a very basic understanding of theology, what Christians believe. And so my goal over these weeks, and, and Corland as well, as he's going to teach some of them, is to introduce you to the world of theology, present different views and interpretations of the Bible, um, to say, hey, some people have viewed it like this, some people view it like this. And really, the goal is that, um, that we would learn how to be students, and how to learn, and how to grow, and how do we read the Bible and understand who God is. 
Um, so tonight, we are going to start with some, some of the attributes of God. Um, some, a, lot, a lot of times, theology classes or textbooks or whatever start with, let's talk about the proof of God's existence. So I'm actually skipping that because I'm coming with it presupposing that all of you believe that there is a God, right? Can we just say, okay, there is a God. Um, and I thought, well, we could spend some time doing, you know, here's all these different proofs for the existence of God. Um, but I'm hoping that I don't have to convince you that God exists. Um, but we want to study tonight, uh, who is God, right? What, what is God like? What is his character like? Um, and so tonight we're going to try and get through seven attributes of God in an hour and a bit. So we'll see how far we get. Uh, but uh, theologians kind of split it into, and I'm going to use the whiteboard a little bit, into two big categories. They call them incommunicable, which I'll explain this in a minute, and then communicable attributes. Um, if you wanted to, to, any guesses of what those two mean? incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Any ideas? <laughs> it's not a trick question or anything. <laughs> so incommunicable in attributes would be attributes that uh, God alone has, that we don't share with God. And then communicable attributes would be attributes that human beings also have. So do you have any, what are, give me some examples of what are attributes that you think maybe God has that you and I don't have as human beings? Yeah? Perfect. Sorry? He's perfect. He's perfect. Yeah. Perfection. Any other ones that come to mind? Omnipotent. Oh, stop throwing big words. <laughs> Omnipotent. <laughs> He's all powerful. Yeah, totally. Um, we won't do all that. And then communicable are attributes that we, we share with God. Like there's, there's things about us that, that are, are true as well. So when you think about, okay, God is love. Well, as human beings, we're capable of loving. So that would be an attribute um, that we would share. Or, um, you know, mercy or God is just or God is faithful. Well, those are attributes that human beings can have as well, right? We can be faithful, we can be just, we can be merciful. And so a lot of times they try and categorize all these different attributes of God like that, right? Here's the ones that we can't even think of having, that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time. Well, no human being has that attribute, but we can be loving and merciful. But it's interesting, it's, it's not quite accurate, um, because even the, the communicable attributes, even the attributes that we can share with God, it, if you want to talk, like God is up here and like we're down here, right? So when we say God is love, he is perfectly, infinitely loving. And we can love, but we're also really capable of hating people too. Uh, and, um, you know, God is faithful up here and we can be faithful, but we can also be really unfaithful. So... It's not as if we're like, God is love, and we are just like that as well, because we're love too. Mm, no, it's like to a certain degree, right? There's certain attributes that we kind of uh, have similar with God. Um, 
even the idea of incommunicable attributes, when we say like God is unchanging, but we aren't, but there could be some aspects of our character that remain unchanged over time. So, so there is overlap if you get uh, uh, what I'm meaning here. So um, those are the two big categories that people use, incommunicable and communicable. And so tonight we want to look at the incommunicable attributes of God, the attributes of God and in my opinion, these are the fun ones because these are the ones that just blow your mind that you're like, God is incredible. I can't even fathom these things. So we want to look at attributes that um, we don't share with God, um, that he alone possesses and that make him God. Um, so we're just going to go through these seven. We'll see how far we get. Um, we'll go through one at a time and... I'll reference those scripture passages, and at any point, if you guys have comments or questions or you want clarification, just shout it out, and we'll try and make it as interactive as possible. So, the first attribute is God's infinity, um, or another way to, to describe it would be his eternity. So, God's infinity or his eternity. Um, this, basically, if you wanted to have a definition, is that God has no beginning, he has no end, and he has no succession of events in his own being. God is basically outside of time. So he's eternal. He has always existed. He, he's, he's never, he has never been created. He will never not exist. He is eternal. And so when we say, well, how long has God existed? Well, he's existed forever. Um, before God created anything, before time, space, matter, before he created the universe, he has always existed, right? God never had a, a starting point, which is really hard for us humanly because everything in our lives has a starting point, right? Your life had a starting point. Your life will have an ending point, right, on, physically on this earth. Um, but God has existed forever. Um, and uh, part of God's eternity or his infinity is that God sees all time equally vividly. So God sees the past, the present, and the future equally. And yet God sees events in time and he acts in time, right? So the Bible is... is a book of history and God acting in history, doing things, but he's also outside of time. He sees all time equally at the same time, right? Does your brain hurt? <laughs> so here's some passages, right? If you, if you have those, um, those verses in front of you that, that talk a little bit about this, about how God has always existed. He's infinite. He's eternal. So Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Right? So the psalmist says, before the mountains were created, before you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Um, Job 36, 26, it says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. I kind of like that because it's kind of like if someone would ask you, well, how old is God? I mean, that's just a silly question. And Job is kind of like, the, the number of God's, you can't, even, you can't even 
ask a question like that. It's unsearchable. Um, he, he doesn't have years like we have years, right? Um, another aspect uh, which we'll see in these passages coming up, God is aware of what is happening, what has happened, and what will happen. And like I said, it's like he sees all time vividly, equally vividly. So does God know the future? Yeah. Does he know what's going to happen tomorrow? Yep. Does he know what's going to happen a thousand years from now? Yep. Does he know what happened 6,000 years ago? Yep. So uh, Psalm 90 verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So the idea of like, when you think, you and I, when we think about a thousand years, <laughs> that is so long, right? But for God, it, it says a thousand years is in his sight, and it's, and it's just like yesterday for him. Second um, Peter 3 verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So that idea of like time for God just doesn't, it's not the same. Like when we think a thousand years, like if you can think of the year 3022, that's just unfathomable. We can't even process that. We probably won't be around, right? But for God, it's like, that's just like a day for him. Um, Isaiah 45, 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. The main point of that is like, who told you that long ago? Who declared it of old? It was God. He was the one that did those things. And then Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, counsels shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the idea of God declares the end from the beginning, he declares from ancient times to things that haven't even happened yet, and he says, my counsel will stand. Like, what God wants to do, he will do. He'll accomplish his purposes. Um, there's a, a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem, and he he drew a, a great picture that helped me kind of think of this. It, he says, if you kind of think of, you know, here's creation, and here's the crucifixion of Jesus, and, you know, here's the Old Testament or whatever, and here's 1995. <laughs> I just picked a random day. <laughs> Uh, he, he said it, it's like God is just, he's, he's over all of it. Um, he sees the beginning from the end. Um, he sees all these succession of events that took place. But it's not as if God is, um, you know, traveling this timeline with us that he goes, man, I did not expect that to happen or... Um, you know, good thing this happened here because that helps me out. Uh, it's when we talk about God's infinity and that he's eternal, it's that he sees the end from the beginning. He sees all of it um, at the same time. So he knows how the world's going to end and he sees how he created it in the beginning all at the same time. <laughs> I don't know. Thoughts?
Yeah. I would probably agree with that, yeah. And it's really hard, right? Like I said, like we, our souls are eternal, right? We'll exist forever when the end comes, either in heaven or in hell. Our souls are forever. But our only, like, point of reference is just the time that we have now. Yeah? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Because <laughs> I think um, when we talk about Jesus being, and we'll probably get to that in the week that we talk about the nature of Jesus as he's fully God and fully man at the same time. But um, Jesus being fully God, he didn't lay aside any of his godness. And yet we see examples where he, he, he uh, what's the right word? He restricted, or he kind of like, because Jesus wasn't everywhere all at the same time, right? He wasn't omnipresent, uh, and yet he's still God. So it's like he, he didn't use that part of his godness. I'm not wording it right, um, but do you get what I'm saying? Like, because um, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time, but Jesus was restricted to a human body, right? So... Mm-hmm. Humans could relate. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, you have to restrain, restrain from doing what ultimately all the things he can. Yeah. And then you do see aspects in Jesus' life where he does know what people are thinking. And it says that he does know what's going to happen. So there's aspects where it's like, okay, yeah, he's clearly God because he, he is all-knowing and he knows what people are thinking and he has uh, power to do things, and yet there's certain aspects where it's like his humanity, you know, he was in human form, so he wasn't everywhere all at the same time. So this, I'd, I'd have to look into that a little bit more about this idea of his eternity and his infinity was that kind of, I hate using the word restricted because it's not, but you know what I mean. <laughs> do you think it has, like, in Philippians 2, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it has to do with the, him taking on flesh was this, this limitation, right? Um, yeah. Um, God's, God's infinity is related to his other attributes as well, which we'll get to, but it's not just the idea that God uh, sees the beginning from the end and he's eternal, but when we talk about his, his infinity, it means that he is infinite in his power. Um, he's infinite in his knowledge. He has all knowledge. Um, and God's eternity means that God's actions are not reactions to things that he like, didn't see coming. So it's not as if, you know, something happened and God goes, oh, no, I did not realize that was going to happen. I got I to, gotta, like, shift and change my plans. It, it, God doesn't get taken by surprise um, because he sees the beginning from the end. Now, it's interesting. I'll, I'll share a few ideas because there's been people over the years, like, and by years, I mean, like, since the early church, so 2,000 years, who have tried to... Um, 
figure this out, right, without the, 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 the mystery behind it of like, okay, God knows the end from the beginning. He sees everything. Nothing is a surprise. And so there was a few uh, teachers in the early church that started going, well, maybe I can explain this better. So there's a, a, a thing called process theology, Um, which was someone kind of going, well, maybe I can explain this better. Um, it was, it was an, in an attempt to go, okay, God is infinite, he's eternal, he knows everything that is going to happen, and yet we still have free will, so how do those things go together? And so uh, I can't remember the name, I should have written down the name of the guy, this was in the first couple centuries, but the idea that um, God is processing time with us, if that makes sense. It's like God's not outside of time. God is experiencing things as we experience them. So uh, they would say there's limits then on God's, um, his absoluteness, his eternity. It says it's like God responds to and he's affected by the process of the world And so it's like the idea of, you know, remember I said, you know, it's not as if God's traveling along with us. Well, this would say, no, he is. And he knows everything there is to know up until this moment, but he doesn't know everything that's going to happen for the rest of time. He's just kind of like processing stuff with us. So that kind of idea is like, well, does God know what's going to happen to you a year from now? He, the, uh, People who believe in process theology, we well, no, he doesn't. He only knows everything up until this moment. Um, and God doesn't know or ordain the future. One writer said, it's like he's kind of on the ride with us, experiencing things with us as we go along. Which is, I, I, I get the idea behind it, being like, we want to let God off the hook for things, right? Um, but it's just, scripture is just really clear that God says, from the beginning to the end, I know everything, right? Or like, um, I declare the end from the beginning. And so it's really hard to uh, biblically say that God doesn't know the future. He's just kind of experiencing things as we do. Um, and then the other one is, um, is called free will theism. Um, and it's, it's super similar. So I'll just put a slash, free will theism. Um, and that is the idea that, um, that God is genuinely affected by, uh, and I'll clarify what I mean, but it's like he's genuinely affected by human action, meaning it's, it like takes him by surprise. He doesn't, he doesn't see it coming. So the idea of like, um, I'm just trying to think, oh, you know, I do something in my life it's like God is genuinely surprised by that, going, oh man, I did not think Andrew was going to do that. It's like he, he doesn't know. So you can see how they're kind of connected. So if, for example, when it says in the Bible, which we'll get to in a bit, that God repented, right? There's a few passages that say, you know, God repented and didn't do what he was going to do. People who kind of hold to this would say, no, he actually repented. Like he um, literally had a plan. Things happened that he was not aware of, and then God repented of what he was going to do, and like, because he didn't see it coming, which you can kind of go, man, if God has to repent of things, 
like literally repent of sin, we're in trouble because then he's not a perfect God, right? And so it's this idea that God is just kind of this open God. He's just, he doesn't know the future. He's just reacting and responding to things as they, they happen. Um, and I, I get why, because the argument is if God knows the very end, if he knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow and the next day and the next day, then how do we have free will? Which, again, I'm like, I get it. That's a hard question <laughs> because the Bible says from the beginning to the end, God knows, and yet I wake up and I make decisions, and they are real decisions. So I, I get the idea of trying to, uh, how do I explain it? Because it just doesn't make sense in my brain. I don't know, thoughts or, or questions? <laughs> You've all never wrestled with that. <laughs> I have all the time. I'm like, how does this work that, I mean, even like Revelation 1.8, God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, uh, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. I, I love that God is saying, like, is there anyone who's like me? Let them declare what's to come and what will happen. Basically, God is saying, if, if, is there anyone who can know the future? Go ahead, try. Like, declare what's going to happen. And then he goes, no, there's no one like God, right, um, who knows the end and the beginning so what do you think are some implications then of God's eternity? I mean, like for your own life. If it's true that God is infinite and he's eternal, he knows the beginning and the end, he sees all of it, um, what does that mean for you? Any ideas? Yes. I think for me, as hard as it is a lot of times to wrestle with the whole like, okay, God, God knows the end. He knows what's going to happen to me. It's, he knows the future. As hard as it sometimes is to wrestle with like, you know, then all my, my days are already planned out. Okay, well that, how do I have free will? And we wrestle with that. I think it's actually incredibly comforting to know God's not taken by surprise by anything that happens. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily answer the question, and we've said this on Sundays, like why things happen. It won't necessarily help us to go, well, why does God allow certain things to happen? But the, 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 the other option is then you have a God who's not in control, who doesn't know the future. Like for me to picture a God who's just on the ride with me, I'm like, that sounds like a terrible God <laughs> who's just experiencing things as I do. And he's like, I don't know what's going to happen, Andrew. I'm like, I don't want to serve a God like that. That'd be awful, right? 
So to, I think it's incredibly comforting to know that um, God is infinite. He's eternal. He sees the end and the beginning. He's never been created. He has no beginning. He has no end. It's just like that is a powerful God. So I find it incredibly um, comforting. Anyone else? Okay, we'll keep moving then. Second, God, uh, his constancy, or that he is unchanging. Um, this one is also really cool because I feel like everything in our life changes all the time. <laughs> so uh, if you wanted a definition of, of God's constancy or the fact that he's unchanging is God is unchanging in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes and his promises. Yet God does feel emotions and acts and feels differently to different situations. So God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes and his promises. Yet he does feel emotions and he acts and feels differently to different situations. Um, the reason I stress that part is because there is um, some people who I think would take the, the idea of God's, uh, him being unchanging too far, and they say in order for God to be unchanging, then he doesn't feel any kind of emotion, that he's just, I don't know, he just doesn't feel anything, because then if you feel things, then you'll change. But I think that's like an unnecessary end that you have to go to. Um, and then it makes God not personable at all. So I think he, he is unchanging in certain aspects, his perfection, his purposes, his plan, his being, and yet he does feel, emo we see examples of God feeling emotions and responding to different situations. Um, the idea also of God being unchanging means that he can't increase in ev anything because he's already perfect in everything. So if, if, when we talk about God being loving and faithful and merciful and just and kind and, and all of these things, he is already perfect in all of those things. He doesn't have to be, he's not like, oh God, you could be a little bit more gracious. No, he's, he's perfectly gracious. And it also means that he can't decrease in anything. So it's not as if God uh, is loving and we're worried that he's going to become less loving. Um, he is perfect in those um, things. And so the nature of God, it, it's not like us, right, where we change and we go through seasons and uh, even your personality or your character might change through the thing. It, God's unchanging in those things. Um, so a few passages. Um, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So I, think, I just love that, that the earth is going to change, the heavens, right, are the work of God's hands, the heavens will change, they're, they're going to perish, they're going to wear out, um, God changes them like a robe, which is just interesting, and all those things are going to pass away, but the psalmist says, but you remain the same, and your, your, your years have no end. Um, Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. 
So the idea of God's counsel uh, is forever. It doesn't change. It just stands forever. The plans of his heart is, stays the same to all generations. Um, this is a really clear one. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So the idea that, I mean, in Numbers, God's saying, I'm not like men. I'm not like people who lie or change their minds. He says, I've said it. I will do it. I've spoken. I will fulfill it. Um, two more, 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie. And by glory of Israel, he means God. Will not lie or have regret. For he's not a man that he should have regret. Right? So God's not changing in the fact that he does something and then goes, ah, I regret doing that. Right? Uh, and then James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I think it seems pretty clear from Scripture that God does not change, right? He is he's constant. Um, his, his character won't change. He won't all of a sudden turn into an evil God or a mean God or anything like that. He's just constant. He will not change. But then the question comes up, can you guys think of examples in Scripture where it seems like God changes his mind? Yeah, okay, yeah. Right, the golden calf incident. Any other examples? Right, uh, with, with Moses, uh, Abraham, what, about Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's ten people in the city, don't, and what if there's five? What the, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Wait a sec. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so Genesis 6, before God floods the earth, it says, I'll just read it, it's on there. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So you're like, well, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah, so those ones really bug me. Why would he be sorry? He already knew what was going to happen. Yeah. So why would he be sorry? Yeah, and it... And it it kind of, those passages, those verses mess with our idea of like, well then wait, did God not know that that was going to happen? Like, yeah. if he was sorry that he made it, then what's happening here? Um, yeah, the, ex, uh, the, the golden calf one is Exodus uh, 32, 14. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So there's the idea, okay, does that mean that God, he was going to do this thing, and then he said, oh, okay, never mind, I'm going to change my mind, and, and I'm going to do the opposite. Um, even in 1 Samuel 15, if you think about um, Saul was made king, and then it says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So you go, okay, well, that's interesting. God regrets making Saul King, uh, And then he, even if you think of uh, Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Jonah 3.10, when God saw 
what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So there's a, there's a handful of times in Scripture where it's like, hmm, I don't know, thoughts on how, you, how do you reconcile those things? Where, I mean, we just read, right, like six, seven, eight passages or whatever it is that says, I, the Lord, do not change. I'm not like a man. I don't change my mind. I don't lie. And then you have examples where it's like, well, it seems like you are, though, God. <laughs> I don't know, any ideas or like how do you make sense of that? So we do something like that so that <clears throat> we feel like we're a part of things or that we should be trying to be more involved with him because maybe we can make a difference. That's I don't know. Yeah. Or I was thinking about it more relationally, like because hmm. he, he is a father mm-hmm. also, and I'm just saying from a parent's perspective, you know, you, well, first of all, God created man with the freedom to choose. Mm-hmm. We raise our kids, we teach them the way that they should go, but they have a choice. I have a choice. Uh-huh. And so, I just don't know how to tie in the the beginning of him knowing that even with giving us freedom to choose, mm-hmm. he set out a plan for each one of us. Now it's up to us to align our life with mm-hmm. the way he's taught, taught us to live. Mm-hmm. And based on those choices, we go, mm-hmm. can we weigh this? Can we weigh this way? Yep. So I just wonder if somehow the father heart plays a role in that. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's so grieved, but... I mean, as a parent, you've been so grieved, mm-hmm. but you're willing to have mercy, mm-hmm. grace, and second chance. Yep. Third chance, fourth chance. <laughs> yeah, fifth, sixth, seven, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, again, uh, Wayne Grudem, he's a, he's a really smart guy. This is what he said about it, which I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't know how I feel about it, but this is what he said. These instances, and he's talking about, you know, Genesis 6, uh, all the, the scriptures I just read. These instances should all be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at that moment. If the situation changes, then of course God's attitude or expression of intention will also change. This is just saying that God responds differently to different situations. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that... Um, we should view it as, uh, again, in this tension of God knowing the beginning and the end, and he's eternal, and he's all-knowing, and he's unchanging, and yet scripture seems to say that we also make decisions, and we have free will, and it's, we're not robots. So he seems to be saying that these instances are, are, are God just responding differently to different situations. Um, he uses the example of Jonah because people say, well, look, God was going to destroy Jonah or <laughs> destroy Nineveh and they repented. So God changed his mind. But the possibility of grace was always there, right? Because he sends Jonah to go preach. So I don't think it's as if God went, I can't believe they repented. Now I have to change my mind. That option was always there, right? Because God said, go and preach to Nineveh, Jonah, 
that unless they repent, I will destroy them. And what did they do? They repented, so God said, okay, I won't, I won't destroy you. Um, uh, the examples with Moses and Hezekiah, if you remember, God tells Hezekiah, he's one of the kings, and he says, um, I can't remember exactly the number of years. You're going to die in this number of years. And then Hezekiah repents, and then God says, okay, I'll give you 15, I think it is, 15 more years. And so there's that example, or with the example with Moses, when Moses says, you know, remember your covenant, God, don't destroy your people, and then God changes his mind. Um, uh, this guy says that God said he would send judgment, and that was true, provided the situation remained the same, but the situation changed. So his, his, his way to reconcile these two things is, is it's not as if God didn't know what was going to happen, but it's like he presents these options to people, and that is this mystery of our choices matter, but I don't think it means that God is so unaware of what's going to happen that he, he just has to constantly be changing his mind. Um, I think it shows that we, our choices matter. Our, our real world choices have consequences. And God presents right to Nineveh, if you do this, I'll wipe you out. If you do this, I'll spare you. And they did the sparing one, so he responded that way. And um, things like that. So um, other, other, other um, explanations I've heard is some scholars say, well, maybe scripture is just using what's called anthropomorphisms. Do you know what that is? It's the idea of describing God using human terms so that we can just kind of understand more. And so I go, maybe, that, that's a possibility. Maybe the writers of scripture are going, how do we describe what happened in a way that human beings will understand? So maybe it's, it's that. Um, some have said maybe it's just a new stage in the working out of God's plan. So for example, Gentiles, non-Jewish people receiving salvation. Um, as you read scripture, it would look like, well, maybe that was like a, okay, it's not working out with Israel. I'm going to change plans and go and save all the non-Israelites. But we know it was God's plan from the beginning. He, he didn't change his mind with Israel, right? Even though it could appear that way. Um, and then some say maybe it's a, a change of orientation resulting from a human's move into a different relationship with God. So for instance, God wasn't the one who changed when Adam sinned. Adam was the one who changed, right? Humanity moved from God's favor into God's disfavor because they rebelled. And so you could maybe view it that way. I don't know, other, other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, because I think, okay, so Genesis 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. If we take that to mean that God didn't know what was going to happen, he really thought Adam and Eve were going to live forever in the Garden of Eden, and he was like, what happened? And he was saying, oh man, I wish I had never made human beings. Well, we go, that, 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 if that's the view that then breaks apart all sorts of issues of God's character if we go, wait a second, like, 
then he didn't know that it was going to happen. He's not eternal. He's not infinite. He's not unchanging. So you have to like take uh, all of scripture, right? Because again, you have all of these scriptures that say, God says, I do not change. And then you hold that and you go, okay, so God doesn't change. Then how do we interpret passages where it seems like he does? So I think it's, it's perfectly fine for God to look at everything, uh, all, because you read Genesis 6 and it's like every thought of human beings was sinful, right? It's, that's, Essentially what it says, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. So the idea is like every single thought people had was just sinful. And I think it's perfectly fine to describe it as God looking at that and going, I just feel like sorrow over this, that look at what is happening. I I, for me, I don't think that means that God goes, I did not expect this to happen. It's him going, this is awful. Like this is so wicked. And it's described that he feels that kind of sorrow um, and it grieves him to his heart. So for me, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, necessarily bother me. There's a bit of like tension, right? Where you go, okay, uh, if God is unchanging, then we got to wrestle with these passages, right? So I think there are ways to, to process these things. I don't know. Other thoughts? Yeah. example of Abraham with God. Okay, God, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God's like, okay. And if there's five, and if there's two, for me, I don't, I don't view it as God going, okay, fine. I'll I think he knew all along what was going to happen, but he was bringing Abraham into the picture, right? Um, and it's this weird mystery of, did Abraham with was, was what he was saying, did it matter? Yeah, totally. It totally mattered as he had a conversation with God, which is wild. Um, but I don't think that means that God went, okay, I better go count. Sorry, I changed my mind. I have to do this. I, I think he can still be eternal and know what he's going to do and yet still involve um, human beings. It's like when Moses goes, no, God, remember your covenant. It's not as if God's like, oh, yeah, shoot, I forgot about my covenant. Like, no, of course he didn't forget. But Moses in that moment is, right, coming in and God is including him in this thing that he's doing. So there is a, an element of mystery to that, I think. Um, but bottom line, too, I think we can trust 
because of all these scriptures that we've read, that when it comes to God, God's being and his perfection and his purposes, God is unchanging. And yet, I think God feels emotion and he responds to different situations differently. And, and he still remains perfect and unchanging in his character and in his being and in his purposes. Um, and then I, I, uh, I thought of the question, well, what would it be like if God could change? Because then you could say, well, he could change for the better. If God is not like perfect and unchanging, well, then how do we know that God is perfect? If he can change, maybe he can become better. Then how can we trust him, right? If he's all of a sudden like, I'm not quite, I can change and I can be a little bit more loving. Then we go, wait, you weren't perfectly loving? Or if God could change for the worst, you go, well, what kind of God could he become if all of a sudden God's like, yeah, changed my mind, now I'm going to be evil, and like we would go, ooh. Um, I, I think it's so important for us to wrestle with those passages of God, you know, reacting to different situations, but to then cling to those passages where God says, I don't change. I'm not like a man that lies um, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Like we can trust that God uh, is unchanging. So, final thoughts? Yeah, Robbie. You kind of said this in different words, but a lot of these passages I think can be explained too when you think about God's unchangeability, referring to his character rather than individual decisions along the way. Mm, mm-hmm. So, like for instance, God is merciful. He says mercy triumphs over judgment. That's always his heart. And so in a situation where he says if you don't repent, you're going to be judged with this uh-huh. judgment. But the people who repent, he's always going to be merciful and relent from the, the judgment. Yes, and yeah. There's a few of the, the passages we, we've looked at that refer to that type of a thing. Mm-hmm. Because his character is unchanging. What would be changing is if he didn't uh, allow their repentance to bring mercy. And he said, well, Huh. I'm going to judge you anyways. That would be his character changing. Yes, that's a really good point. If Nineveh had, if Nineveh had repented and he said, sorry, too late, then yeah, okay, yeah, I get what you're saying. That's really good. Yep. It's kind of with what you were saying, because his mercy would be less than. It used to be that if you repented, he would forgive you. Now he's not going to forgive you. <laughs> yeah. It's a blessing of his mercy in that case. Yep. Yeah. Well said. Okay, we're going to keep moving because we're only on number three. Uh, Omnipotence. This was the Tyler word that he threw out there for 100 points. Omnipotence. Um, So this means that God is all-powerful. And it's kind of related to his infinity, that God has infinite power. And it comes from... That word comes from two Latin words, which is omni, which means all. And what do you think that word means? It's not uh, potens, is power. So omnipotence just means he possesses all power. And really simply put, it means that God is able to do uh, whatever he wants to do. He has unlimited power. He's, He's never frustrated. He never goes, ah, I can't do that because I don't have the power to do it. Um, God chooses to do and he'll accomplish everything that he sets out to do. Um, 
Even one of the names of God in Genesis 17, uh, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, literally uh, El Shaddai, I am God all-powerful, almighty. Um, in Genesis 18.4, God asked the rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is like, no, of course not. There's nothing that's too hard for God to accomplish. Um, Psalm 24, 8, who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Um, Jeremiah 32, 17, ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Um, Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Uh, Luke 1, 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Um, uh, Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, right? So, I mean, we could go on and on. There's so many passages that talk about God's power, his might, that he, he can accomplish anything uh, he wants to. And then you just read the Bible and you see examples of God doing just that. I mean, some of the examples, right? Abram and uh, Sarah had a baby when they were in their 90s, right? Like the birth of Isaac is a miracle that God can orchestrate that, and he's powerful to do that. You think about the 10 plagues in Egypt, um, God has all power to do that. Uh, you think about the parting of the Red Sea, you think about Jonah being swallowed by a fish, you think, just think of all of the, the stories of the Bible, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, all of these things that we would go, that's impossible. That can't happen. Um, God can do it. He has unlimited power um, to do those things. Um, there's nothing that God can't do. Um, but then the question that I ask is, are there certain things that God can't do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And it's not a trick question. But when we talk about God ha having the power to do anything, are there certain things that God can't do. Okay, yeah. Well, that's a terrible writing. Can't change. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. I think it's funny when we're like, God can do anything except. <laughs> well, there are a few passages that talk about things that God can't or won't do. Um, so in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So one of the things that, in, even with all God's power, one of the things that he won't do and can't do is lie. Because his character is so good and so holy that we don't have to worry that God's going to lie to us. Um, 2 Timothy 2-13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God can't deny who he is, his character. He can't deny himself. Um, James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So I love that uh, Hebrews says, not only uh, will it, like God won't lie, he says it's impossible for God to lie. Because of his character. He is so good that God cannot lie. Uh, and then we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So uh, basically, God, 
God is all-powerful to do anything, and yet he, he can't act contrary to his nature. So he can't lie, he can't be cruel, God can't sin, because all of those other attributes are perfectly true of God. So when we think of, yeah, God, God can't be cruel because his other attributes are so good. He can't lie because he, he is perfect truth. He, he's unable to lie. Um, so God, like, that's so not like us, isn't it? One, we have, like, no power, right? We have very limited power, and, and we still are able to do all of these evil things. We can lie, we can be cruel, we can be mean, we can go against, right, uh, uh, our nature or whatever, but God cannot do those things. Um, anything that is unholy or evil or anything like that, God cannot and won't do. We can trust that he won't do those things. I don't know, thoughts on God's power? I mean, we could just read so many cool examples of the things that God does throughout scripture, but to think that he is just unlimited when we go, there's literally nothing besides those things that God can't do. Yeah? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, for me, it was interesting how some of the scriptures were worded. Like, when it says God cannot be tempted with evil. I, I get what you're saying, but like scripture says, it's not that he won't be tempted by evil. Like James says, he literally cannot be tempted by evil. So you go, okay, that's interesting. Like, uh, and then even the idea of it is impossible for God to lie. I think it's hard for us because we go, no, but anything's possible, right? Because God can do anything. But I think his character is so perfect that it is impossible for him, right, to lie. So, but I, I get what you mean, that maybe the wording is confusing. Yeah. How come Jesus was tempted in the desert? Great question. Yeah, if it says that, um, James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So I would say Jesus, um, part of his temptation, uh, the idea that God can't be tempted with evil, like to do evil, the fact that we can trust that God's not going to do evil to us, to me that's a little bit different than Satan trying to tempt Jesus to abandon his mission to go to the cross, if that makes sense. Because like all of Satan's temptations were, you know, if you're the son of God, just do this. If you're the son of God, do that. Jump off the temple and you'll, you know, you won't hit your foot on the ground or, or uh, something like that. So to me, it wasn't Satan saying like, hey, Jesus, go kill a bunch of people or like do evil things. He was just saying, hey, Jesus, prove that, like do some fancy things to prove who you are. And, and I think it was meant to be a distraction from him going to the cross. Um, so I think it's slightly different, if that makes sense. But great question. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to keep moving because it's already 8.05. Number four, God's independence. 
independence. Um, it can also be called God's self-existence, um, meaning God is completely independent from everything. He doesn't need um, anyone or anything. Um, he is completely self-sufficient in himself. Um, this relates to the idea of the Trinity, which we'll get to, I think, in two weeks, the idea that God exists as a community of persons, which is mind-blowing, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's the idea that God is completely self-sufficient and self-existent. It's not, he doesn't need anything from anyone. Um, he doesn't need anybody. Um, it's, it's interesting because sometimes we have this idea that, you know, why did God create human beings? Well, he created human beings because he was lonely, right? I've actually heard people say that, well, God was just existing forever by himself and he was lonely, so he created a bunch of people so that he could have friends. Um, even there's that song, um, you, uh, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down. So it's that idea of like God is sitting up in heaven going, man, I'm so bored up here. <laughs> and he wanted heaven filled with all of his friends, so he came down, which, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely song, but it's not quite true because it paints this picture of God being needy, like he, he needs us. When scripture kind of paints the picture that God is completely self-existent, he doesn't, he doesn't need anyone or anything. Um, in Job 41, it says, uh, this is God speaking, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So that idea that people, it's not like people can give a gift to God that he goes, okay, now I'm in your debt, I gotta pay you back. He goes, well, everything in, in the universe is mine. Um, Acts 17, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind. So that idea that, you know, the... the the ancient view of other gods was, okay, we build these temples and we bring sacrifices because the gods are needy. They need our food. They need our worship or else they'll, you know, be miserable. But uh, Paul says in Acts, God, the God who made the world, and he doesn't need anything from you. He's not served by human hands. He gives himself to all mankind. Um, Psalm 50, God says, for every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Again, it's not saying that, you know, God literally gets hungry, but he's saying if I were to get hungry, I wouldn't have to ask you for anything because I own everything, right? I own every cattle that's on the hill. I own all the birds. I don't, I don't need things from you. Um, so that means that God does, it's not as if God derives his life from any external source, right? There's often the argument, okay, well, if God created everything, who created God? Well, nobody. He doesn't, he, he's self-sufficient, he's self-existent. Um, he was never created, he never came into being. Um, he has existed by virtue of his very nature, and he doesn't need anything, um, couple more passages talks about that. John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, this is Jesus talking, so he's granted the son also to have life in himself. Um, Romans 11 says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. And then 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So it's very, um, this aspect of God is very different than us, right? Because we are um, very dependent on other people. You think about when you're born, uh, you won't survive without your parents. You are so dependent for your existence on them, essentially. Um, and then throughout life, right? When you're, we're just so dependent. Relationally, um, physically, emotionally, we're so dependent on each other. Um, and then when you get older, right? Again, it's like at the end of your life and at the beginning of your life, you're very dependent on people for your existence. And the whole idea of God being independent is that he is not like that. He is completely self existent uh, in himself. He doesn't need anything. Thoughts? Questions? I think the, the greatest uh, power of God to uh, be seen in the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created Benet, Barah, that's the Hebrew word, that out of nothing. Yeah. So, so he, he has he had nothing create what we see right now and he did it. Yep, totally. And I think this aspect of God that he, he doesn't he doesn't need anything it makes creation and redemption so much more amazing for us that God just because of his love would create everyone and would send his son uh, to die for us. Not because he was like, I'm really lonely. I got to save some people to come fill heaven with me. But just because of his love and his mercy and his grace and who he is. It just, it's it, when you realize that God doesn't need us and yet he so desires us. It's, it's like unlike any other relationship, right? That we have, whether it's your spouse or your brother or sister or whatever. Um, where it kind of goes both ways, right? Where I need you and you need me. But with God, he's like, I actually don't need anybody, but I want you in my family. It just makes it, for me, the, the act of creation and redemption so much more amazing that God, solely out of his character, decided to create all of us and save us. Like, it's just even more amazing. <laughs> Okay, can we do a few more? <laughs> In like God's omnipresence. This one is also mind-boggling. So God does not have spatial or size dimensions. So when we say, how big is God? That's an irrelevant question. Um, and God is present at every point of space with his whole being. And yet God acts differently in different places. So think about that. <laughs> what, what the Bible doesn't teach is that there's, just, that there's parts of God everywhere, right? That God is just kind of spread out and there's parts of him everywhere. Or that, um, that God, uh, the idea of pantheism is the idea that God is just in everything, right? God is in the trees and the rocks. and the... That's not what the Bible teaches, that he's in things but rather that God is fully present everywhere, <laughs> right? So again, this one is like very hard to wrap your mind around because it's just unlike anything 
right? I can only be one place at a time fully, like, right? But to say that God is just present uh, everywhere fully. Um, so a couple of, of passages that, that talk about this. Um, Jeremiah 23. God says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So the idea that, like, can you go and hide away that, so that God can't find you? It's, well, no, of course not. God, God fills heaven and earth. There's nowhere that you can go that is away from the presence of God. I mean, Psalm, 30, or Psalm 139, David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, uh, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. First um, Kings 8.27, it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. That's when um, Solomon builds the temple, right? And he's dedicating and he goes, how can like this brick and mortar and this building contain you, God? Like the highest of heavens can't even contain you. So it's interesting, right? All these passages that say like, you can go to the, uh, the farthest reaches of the sea. You can go down and dig a grave and try and hide in a hole. You can go up to heaven and there's nowhere that you can go to escape the presence of God. And here's what's interesting. Compared to other false gods of the day, um, in, in ancient uh, religions, it's like your God could be in one place at a time. Right? He, uh, you think about Baal and Molech and all these false gods that they worshipped. Th those gods, in, even in their religions, they were restricted to one place at one time. Uh, if you remember the story in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is battling with the prophets of Baal and they're building their altars and, you know, okay, call on your God, call on Baal to bring the fire down and nothing's happening. And this is why I love Elijah because it says, at noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and has to be waking up. So their view was like God, their gods couldn't be everywhere at once. So Elijah's playing into that, going like, well, maybe he's on a trip. Call louder so that Baal can hear you. He's, not, he's far away, right? And so that's so different from what we see describing God in the Bible, being everywhere at once, being omnipresent, um, I don't know, initial thoughts of, of that? Yeah. So, this is a random thought. Would he be in Elton too? Good question. <laughs> we'll come back to that.
that we can be reconciled when we sin, when we do wrong, instead of trying to hide it, hmm. the quicker we can say, God, you know what I just did. Mm -hmm. Can you forgive me? But that is not our tendency. Mm -mm. We want to hide. And that's why we have the scriptures. Where are you going to go? Because God knows that is exactly what we're going to do. Totally. Yep. You're so right. That is, is exactly our tendency when we sin or whatever. And it's, yeah, I love that scripture does say that. Like, where are you going to go? <laughs> that God won't be there. Like, you can't go anywhere. Yeah, to answer that, the, um, the hell question, I think hell is so terrible because it is an absence of the presence of God. Um, when you read descriptions of hell, it's like this idea that, and I don't know how that works, right? I think hell is a real physical place. And yet in Revelation, and I was trying to flip and find it, it talks about that the, the smoke from their torment goes up in the presence of the Lamb. So you go, well, wait a second, that just wrecks my... <laughs> but the, the reason that hell is so terrible is because it's, it's everything good about God's presence and His blessing and His love is removed. And that's why hell is so awful, is because God's not there, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and then as you read scripture, so God is, God is everywhere at once. And yet you read scripture and it's like God can show up and act differently in different places in creation, right? Um, sometimes God comes and he's present to punish. You read some of the um, Old Testament prophets like Amos. Um, it's like God shows up, right? Specifically to punish. Sometimes God... Uh, is present to sustain us. I mean, Colossians 1.17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together, talking about Jesus. Um, Hebrews 1 says that um, Jesus is holding the universe together by the word of his power. Um, sometimes God is present to bless us, right? Uh, Psalm 16.11 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so sometimes you see, uh, even in the Old Testament, God is present everywhere at once, but then it's like he specifically shows up uh, in certain stories, right? And whether it's he comes and he appears to Abraham, or he comes uh, and he wrestles with Jacob, uh, or like there's specific times. So when we say like God is present everywhere, that's true, but there's also instances where it's like God's presence comes here specifically, right? Uh, the temple, when the temple is... Um, dedicated and it says the presence of God comes down and rests on the temple. You're like, okay, that's wild. I don't think that means that God is not present everywhere at once still. It's just he's chosen to now, he manifests his presence right here at, at this time. So it's just wild to think. Uh, I think what you said, Ernie, is so true. Um, and I'm going to read this quote. There's a guy named Herman Bavink, and he says this, when you wish to do something evil... You retire from public into your house where no enemy may see you. 
from those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of man, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart, and there you meditate. And then he says about God's presence, he's more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place you may flee from God, um, angry but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee unto him. Right? The idea that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the, the Holy Spirit in you, that, I mean, well, how does he word it? I mean, there's someone who's more inward than you are. Like, he's right there with you. So don't, don't attempt to flee from him. Flee to him. So I think you uh, nailed it on the head, Ernie, when you said the, the fact that God is omnipresent is meant to be a comfort to us. There's no place that we can go where he's not with us. Um, he's, he's, he's everywhere. Um, yeah. Thoughts about that? Mm-hmm. I think that um, uh, many people, especially unbelievers and even Christians, they, they think that sort of hell is the place where Satan reigns. <clears throat> I think that's a huge misconception of what the Bible says. Because in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself it says, chapter 1, verse 18, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And um, the living one, I da died, and behold, I am alive for, uh, forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Hmm. And in chapter 20, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pin and the great chain, and he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil, the devil and Satan. So, uh, hmm. Yes, we may say that um, that's not the place where, where God uh, dwells, but it doesn't mean that He doesn't control it. Sure. Yeah. He has control of the world. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, we had two more, but I'm going to skip one and we're going to focus on the last one. Because number six was His invisibility, His spirituality. The idea that God is spirit um, and that he's invisible, God. Uh, and then, you know, Jesus comes and he's God in the flesh. Um, but we're just going to kind of skip that one because the last one of God's omniscience, or I always used to call it omniscience because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> But God's omniscience, it means that God is all-knowing, that he knows everything. It's, re it's related to his infinity, that God is eternal, that he sees the beginning and, and the end. But it goes even a step beyond that meaning, that, that everything there is to know about anything and everything, God knows everything. Um, God fully knows, uh, a, de a definition I read, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible. Uh, in one simple and eternal act. So the idea that God knows everything and even all possibilities of things, which is kind of a wild concept. Things that don't even happen, but that just are possibilities. God knows all of those things. Um, in Job 37, God says to Job, Do you know the balancing of the clouds? 
the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. First um, John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So it's the idea that um, God, it's not as if God, his knowledge ever grows, that he's like, oh, I'm learning new things. Um, God already knows everything. He doesn't have to learn anything new. He is all-knowing. Um, God knows himself perfectly, which is a, a really interesting thing. There's a few passages that, that talk about this. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of, of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So this idea that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, searches everything, even the depths of God. Who can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God? So it's the idea of, okay, God, his own being is infinite and unlimited and yet because God is all-knowing of course he fully knows himself in every there's no aspect of God that he's like I didn't know that about myself right (laughs) and that's like us right there's things that happen and we go oh man I did not realize that about myself that never happens to God he's never like I did not know that about my character he knows everything about himself Um, the other thing is that he knows all things um perfectly. So Hebrews 4.3, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there's, there's nothing that is hidden from God's knowledge. Um, 2 Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards them. So it's this, this idea of God sees everyone in the whole earth. Um, Job 28, 24, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Uh, Matthew 9, Jesus talks about uh, God the Father saying, are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So when you think about like everything that God knows, every, Jesus says every bird that falls to the ground and you think about the amount of birds that are in the world, like God knows every single one. If you think about the amount of hair in this room, God knows every, I know her, sorry, except for Ernie. <laughs> that God knows like the exact number of every, and not just in this room, of every human being on the planet. God knows every hair of their head. It's just mind boggling that he knows all things perfectly. Um, And then God knows the future perfectly as well. Not just the past and not just the present, but everything in the future God knows as well. And there's a few passages we looked at already, but I mean, Isaiah 46, I'm God, there is no other. I'm God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, ancient times to things not yet done. Um, And then I'll skip that. But Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that amazing? Like before you even ask, oh, okay, God, I need a new job. God's like, yeah, I already knew that. I knew that you needed a new job. Um, Psalm 139, it, it goes even farther. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So even before uh, a, a word comes out of your mouth, God already knows that that was going to come out of your mouth. And then he says, when you were just kind of unformed substance, right? He's talking about like when you were just a fetus in your mother's womb, all the days of your life were already written out for you. Like that is just wild to think of, um, that God, he's all-knowing for all of us. He knows everything about us. And then the last part of that, which is really cool, is that God knows all things possible as well. So you think about this one, and this one gets kind of like trippy, which is kind of fun to think about. But God doesn't just know all, all things that did happen and will happen, but he knows all, of, all things that could have happened. So God, if you think about it, God has made this incredibly complex and varied universe, and God fully knows himself. He knows everything that he's able to do, and there are thousands upon thousands of variations or things that God could have created, but he didn't. And his infinite knowledge includes detailed knowledge of all of those things. And there's a few passages that talk about this, where passages talk about what could have happened, and that God knows all of those details as well. Like, um... When you, uh, I'm going to flip to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, um, David is talking about, in verse 11 and 13, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul and the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped, he gave up the expedition. So, but the, the questions that David is asking, it's like God already knows the, the results of, any, of all of them. Like, is, is Saul going to do this? Is he going to come down? Uh, yeah, but God also knew what would happen if he didn't come down. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it's just... It's unbelievable to think like that. Um, even in Jesus in Matthew, he says, uh, Matthew 11, if Tyre and Sidon, um, he, uh, which are cities, he says they would have repented if Jesus' miracles had been done in them. So it's like, how does God know that? It's because he knows all possibilities. He's all-knowing in everything. So he knows that if Jesus had gone to those cities, they would have repented, even though that never happened. Jesus never went there, right? Um, in 2 Kings 13, Elisha tells what would have happened uh, if King Joash had done these, these you know, other things. Uh, and because God told him, if he, does, if he had done that, then this would have happened. And so uh, to end, like when we talk about God's, all of these characteristics of God that are so far above us. Um, two passages came to mind to finish with. Psalm 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, right? It is high. I cannot attain it. The idea, like, and that's a little bit of what we're doing. We're like kind of digging into things that are just too wonderful for us that we go, man, I can't even fathom these things. And then Isaiah 55.9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. This is God speaking and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So there is an aspect to theology when we dive into these things, and it's really good, but it's important for us to remember that, that we go, okay, God's 
God's ways and his thoughts are so much higher than our ways and our thoughts. And we're just trying to, to understand who this God is. And he's just so wonderful. And that's, that's part of the fun of theology is getting to spend time understanding who this God is. I don't know. Final thoughts? We're already over time. <sighs> final thoughts on anything that we talked about? Okay. Well, I hope that's been uh, helpful and interesting. Um, I gave you all those passages so that you can dig into some of that on your own if you want. And then next week we'll, we'll uh, dive into some of the communicable attributes, which are attributes that we, you know, have similarities with God. So maybe I'll just pray to close and then we'll go from there. So Father, thank you for tonight. God, ultimately, I pray that when we study theology, that it wouldn't just be um, more head knowledge. Um, God, I think it's so important for us to use our minds and engage our minds when it comes to studying who you are. But ultimately, we want it to affect our hearts. And so I pray tonight as we've studied just unbelievable attributes that you possess, that God, ultimately, it would stir up our affections for you, that we would just be marveling at who you are, um, at how powerful and all-knowing and eternal and all of those aspects of who you are, that it would just cause us to love you deeper, um, to want to know you more, God. And so would you just take these things and just kind of sink them down into our hearts so that it would change um, the way we live. And so we just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.